Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. Hello everyone, this is Michael Biamonte, Clinical Nutritionist. Today's podcast is going to be a new look at candida and autism. One of, this is one of my uh, favorite subjects because the link between them is so obvious that when we discuss this, a lot of these things will typically fall in place. So first off, we want to review today the steps that lead a child into autism. And keep in mind that this can be a bit different for a child because all children with this condition are individually different. Their genetic makeup is a bit different. So it, it, it may never be exactly as we're going to lay it out, but it will be close, close enough to be workable and to be understandable. Essentially, the condition of autism begins with genetic weaknesses that children may have. On the internet, there are uh, doctors and websites that sell testing to determine these genetic weaknesses. It's a very common practice nowadays. There are a host of genetic weaknesses which could lead to autism. The one thing that all of the genetic weaknesses have in common is that they all interfere with the ability to properly detoxify. And that is the key in understanding this situation. All of the genetic weaknesses that exist that are typical to autism somehow involve problems with detoxification and then problems that will affect the nervous system, such as having uh, excess inflammation or oxidative stress that will then cause the neurological problems. So that right there is a key thing to understand when we're dealing with autism and we're talking about genetic weaknesses. It's not as though the child necessarily has a genetic weakness that deals with, uh, let's say, having a rheumatoid arthritis or a genetic weakness that causes them towards cancer or something like this. This is not what we're interested in and this is not what we find. When we look at the autistic children, the genetic weaknesses that we're interested in looking for are the ones that interfere with detoxification and, and, and uh, problems in the nervous system. And one of the reasons why we're interested in looking at these is because these are the ones functionally which cause the children the problems they have. There is a list of these genetic weaknesses you'll find on my website. You can also Google for them and find uh, and find them. Uh, 
the key thing to remember is what they all have in common is errors and problems with detoxification. That's the most important thing to walk away with this understanding. These problems that the child has with detoxification cause further issues because it in turn ends up affecting their nervous system and their metabolism in ways that affect them cognitively. Now, typically, what will happen um, is the child is born with genetic errors, as we discussed, and after that point, the child then is exposed to some type of toxin, which is not some toxin which is esoteric at all. It's the toxins the children are exposed to are very typical and predictable. And as you would assume, uh, these are toxins that are related to toxic metals. In my practice, we deal with a lot of autistic children. We frequently test them for toxic metals. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a rarity where we find the person does not have toxic metals. It is, it is more common that they do. And I would go as far as saying that we could say that you, there are several different types of autism. And one of the types of autism, this, the one that is probably the most common and the most researched, are where the children have underlying physical reasons that could explain their cognitive and autistic problems. In children who do not, I would say that we could even label them with some other illness and not even call it autism. There, that, that is something that would need to be hashed out by the powers that be, whether or not we just want to call all children who have these cognitive symptoms autistic, or whether or not we want to separate them out into the ones that actually have physical explanations for this as opposed to those who have no physical explanation. I can tell you in my years of doing this, it's rare that I find a child uh, who does not have a physical explanation. Typically, as we said earlier, child is born, all people have different genetic makeups. Your genetic makeup is a combination of what your mother and father give to you. And autistic children are typically called non-excretors. Uh, non-excretors, this term refers to their inability to excrete toxins, particularly toxic metals, from their system. Uh, in working with uh, many people with, with autism, I can say that the more common toxic metals that you find, of course, are mercury, because mercury is the most indicted of all toxic metals that uh, involve autism. However, Jenny McCarthy, who we all know, made an interesting observation, and I can tell you uh, in my own practice and testing people, I can back up what Jenny McCarthy claimed, and I did some work with Jenny and her family a few years ago for, for a while, and we're in agreement that the more common and the more dangerous of all the elements that these children have is copper. Mercury is the more celebrated toxic element involved with autism. Copper is arguably the most common and the more dangerous one. The genetic errors that these children typically are born with, these are the most common genetic errors. One of them is EPHX. If you Google this, 
This is how you would put it in, EPHX. And then, of course, the two very common ones, which are MTRR and MTHFR. These MTHFR and MTRR are the methylation errors. These are the errors that involve folic acid and B12 and methionine and one's ability to methylate, which is one's ability to detoxify via the liver. The uh, EPHX genetic error is one that involves glutathione, and this genetic error essentially disables the body and the liver's ability to properly use glutathione to detoxify. And this is the common, these are the common genetic errors that you'll find, but there are others, but these are the more common ones that you'll find in these children. Uh, genetic error called MMP-1, that's Mary Mary P-1, is another that you find commonly in autistic children because this genetic error particularly affects collagen and the health of collagen in the intestinal tract. So the people with the MMP-1 genetic error are more, com more prone to developing intestinal problems and leaky gut syndrome. Now, once the child is growing up and the child receives antibiotics, easily the child then enters the state of dysbiosis where they now have an imbalance between their friendly bacteria and their harmful bacteria. Uh, it's well known when you just study candida unto itself that candida can cause neurological and cognitive problems. Many people who are not autistic who suffer with candida complain of the brain fog that occurs with candida. You can just imagine and imagine how intensified that is for the child who has autism. The children with autism, because of these genetic errors, are much more prone to various vascular weaknesses. Poor blood flow to the brain and the nervous system is very common and, of course, causes cognitive disorders. So if we throw that on top of the fact that many of them have a dysbiosis or have candida, and the candida is releasing uh, neurological toxins, myco or fungal toxins, and aldehydes, which all adversely affect the brain function and the nervous system, you can then further understand the trouble that these children are in. Now, in the children with this malady who develop leaky gut syndrome, it's going to be very common that their system will allow incompletely digested proteins, chemical residues from food and drink, and general environmental toxins to enter their bloodstream, which then set off a cascade of allergies, inflammation, chemical sensitivities, and whatnot. This, of course, is going to worsen their cognitive problems. Now, the result, ultimately, of many of these steps that we just discussed are that the child is going to have various vitamin and mineral imbalances and deficiencies, which then will worsen this entire profile. Reversing this is actually not that hard. It takes time. But in the long-range treatment plan in someone who has this condition is going to be to handle in the correct order 
the individual parts of the condition. So we would start by handling the candida and the leaky gut condition first. Since candida interferes with the absorption of nutrients that are necessary to heal the body, and since candida can also spread and multiply as a result of mercury exposure, the candida would be handled first. You would not want to handle the mercury or the toxic metal first, which tends to be the inclination of many health practitioners. Uh, in my practice over the years, I've had many people come to me saying that they went to such and such doctor who's usually reasonably well known, and the doctor immediately wanted to start chelating the child of mercury or copper in addressing this condition. These people end up coming to me because when the child undergoes the chelation, they get noticeably worse, sometimes to the point where they can't even tolerate continuing the chelation. The reason for this is very simple. When you draw copper and mercury or any toxic metal out of the tissues, it re-enters the bloodstream. In re-entering the bloodstream, it's going to go to the liver, and a certain amount of it is going to be incorporated into the bile and in the feces to be excreted out of the body. As those toxic metals come down the intestinal tract, they're absorbed by candida cells. They also suppress the immune response surrounding the candida cells, and the candida gets worse. So it is that simple. This is why that's not done in that order. I highly uh, recommend that the candida or the dysbiosis always be treated first, and the toxic metals not be treated until you know you've got a grip on what's happening with the candida. Also, people with leaky gut are apt to reabsorb the metals. This is something that uh, is not often considered. But if you have leaky gut, you're leaking everything into your, into your, or from your intestinal tract into your bloodstream. So if you're going to start pulling metals out of your system while you have leaky gut, you're giving them the perf perfect opportunity to fall through the cracks and come back into your bloodstream because the leaky gut's present. So this is, uh, again, doesn't make sense to do it this way. Very often there are vascular deficiencies which occur in these children with autism, which unfortunately causes a lack of oxygen and blood flow to the brain. Uh, nitric oxide enhancing agents and nitric oxide medications such as nitrobid cream, arginine and citrulline supplements, there are a whole host of them on the market, can increase the amount of oxygen and candida happens to hate oxygen. So not only is the oxygen or this enhanced circulation treatment effective in helping the person cognitively, it also is not something the candida wants to see. This is a, this is a way as an adjunct to attack the candida further by using substances which are going to increase blood flow and oxygenation because they will help any other treatment that you're using in attacking the candida. At this point we can now consider handling toxic metals. If we've handled candida, we've handled the leaky gut, if we've done something to increase blood flow, because when you increase blood flow, you essentially speed up everything in the system, you can now deal with toxic metals. In the child who's a non-excreter, which most of these autistic children are, uh, it's, it, it's a trick, and it's a... Uh, a bit of an adventure in dealing with their toxic metal issues. There, is, there are many out there who have tried various types of chelation and whatnot. This is not particularly a podcast on chelation, 
But I do want to say that a chelation program must include the following factors to be successful. It has to have a chelator, such as DMPS, DMSA, or EDTA, which is going to aggressively bind the toxic metals and pull them out of the body. It also has to have a plan of synergistic nutrients, which in, its, in, their, in their own right will help the removal of these metals. These would be nutrients which are synergistic in the sense that they naturally antagonize and help the body get rid of these metals. We would also want to back this program up with natural chelators, things such as cilantro, um, MNS sulfur, uh, molybdenum as a, toxic, as a toxic metal eliminator, vitamin C, which is a, a good eliminator and a natural chelator. All of these things will be used in conjunction. The other thing that we want to consider is to have the child take things which prevent the reabsorption of the toxic metal. Now, this is something which is really not very well known or even considered or used by any practitioners. But there do exist a list of various substances which uh, actually bind the toxic metals in the intestinal tract and prevent them from being reabsorbed. Unfortunately, as I said, these aren't well known and well used. They do exist, they work very well, and in the case where the person has had leaky gut or has a weak intestinal tract, it's essential that the person take these things because these substances bar the reabsorption of the toxic metal back into the body. So by taking these things, you're ensuring that as you pull the toxic metal out of the body, the person's not just going to pull it back in as they're going through chelation. In fact, a lot of the symptoms that people have, adverse symptoms they have when they chelate metals, are not so much the metal coming out of their body and being excreted, but to some degree, it's the metal being chelated, coming out of the tissues, re-entering circulation, being excreted, and then being reabsorbed. So that's where substances that stop the, reab the reabsorption of these metals are very important. Uh, there are two in particular that I can share with you today. One is modified citrus pectin. Modified citrus pectin in its own right can act as a chelator, which some people will argue is as effective as DMSA, DMPS, or EDTA. But it also does block the reabsorption of the metals in the intestinal tract. Another product name is Metachel. Metachel is a substance which has various polymers which link to the metal, bind to it in the intestines, and prevent the absorption. So these are two products which certainly would be used. They are good adjuncts and synergists to a chelation program, and they prevent the reabsorption of the metals, which is essential. When we've removed the metals from the child, which could, could take years, at that point you're in a better, you're in a better state to try to rebalance the child's vitamin or mineral imbalances. It's difficult to balance elements in the body while the toxic metals are present. The length of time required to eliminate toxic metals is going to vary child to child. It's, it would not be unusual for it to take a year or more to remove the accumulation of toxic metal in the autistic child. There's an interesting story I'll share with you about a medical doctor whose child was autistic. He discovered this and he then sought all the different autistic 
uh, clinics and evaluations. He really didn't find much use out of any of them. And he essentially went through the medical literature and he, he read that children with autism had a very high rate of being toxic metal poisoned. So when he read this, he began chelating his child, his, his son. He gave the child different chelating agents and checked the child's urine and checked the child's hair about every four to six months to see if the metals were coming out. Well, it, it happened to be that I believe it was after two years of doing this work that the metals finally started to come out in the child's tests. So this means that the, the, this doctor was chelating his child for two years and not seeing any toxic metals in the child's urine or in the child's hair at all. This child typically would be your, your non-excreter. And at the point in time when the doctor was doing this, uh, of course, he was new to this field, so he didn't necessarily know all the enhanced tricks to make it go faster. And uh, also, to be fair about things, back in the day that he was doing this, there wasn't really that much known about chelating metals in autistic children that were non-excretors. Uh, that, that was somewhat of the, the beginning stages of all of the work that we have now, the entire body of work, was all beginning at that time that this doctor began treating his child. So he was at a disadvantage in, first of all, not being uh, someone familiar with the field, and number two, the field at that time didn't have all the tools and the tricks that it has now. So it did take two years of chelating before this doctor saw the evidence of the metals in the child's test results. I happened to be at a lecture this doctor did once where he explained this whole story. And it was quite fascinating to hear and quite fascinating to see the dedication this man had to the process. From his studying in the literature, he was so convinced that this, the literature was correct that he went on two years chelating and didn't see any result. Many people would have given up. Um, luckily, he was scholarly enough to read the information and understand that it would take that long in some cases because the children being bad excretors would need that much extra time to get their system cranked up, so to speak, so that they could get these metals chelated and, and mobilized and moved out of the system. Well, I believe after the doctors started to see the metals coming out in the child's tests, I believe they chelated for three to four years after that, seeing highs and lows of the metals, which is a very common thing. Anyone who has toxic metals who's on a program to remove those metals, as they're on the program to remove it and as they're being tested, if it's quarterly or, or uh, twice a year, whatever the, the pattern is, it's common that you'll see the metals going up and down like a roller coaster because as you test, you're going to test at points where metals are being excreted and hitting a pink, and then you're also going to test at points of time where they're not necessarily peaking. They may be on their way down. So it's normal to see the metals going up and down in a roller coaster-like fashion. Um, I consider that you would want to have three tests in a row which show the metals at a normal level before you could actually believe so. 
I had a patient when I was first in practice, I believe I've told the story on this podcast before, who uh, came to me for an asthma problem. And we had his asthma pretty much wrapped up in six months, but he continued to see me for years later just to keep things in balance. And uh, suddenly we saw his lead level shoot off the graph on the hair test result. And I sat down with him and went over this and asked him on a whole list of possible exposure sources to lead, which he had no, no actual exposure to. I think there was maybe 20 or 25 different possible exposure sources that I had that I asked him about. And sure enough, he was not exposed to any of them at all. The very last one on the list was Grecian Formula 44, which is a man's hair dye. This man's hair was totally white. So I looked at him and I said, well, the last question on the list is Grecian Formula 44. I see your hair is perfectly white, so I would think it's obvious that you're not using this product. And he turned to me and he said, oh, yes, I haven't used that in about 10 years or so. 10 or 12 years was the last time I used that product. So the active ingredient in Grecian Formula 44 is lead acetate. So what I was seeing at this time was this man had been on my treatment plan for two years balancing his vitamins and minerals, and it took that two-year time period for the nutrients I was giving him to reach his bone and start to pull the lead off his bone that he had absorbed when he was taking the Grecian formula product 10 to 12 years ago. Moral of this story is these toxic metals stay in your body, and particularly lead and aluminum store on your bone and are going to stay there until you do something to dislodge them. Now, again, this is not particularly a podcast about toxic metals, but I do want you to have that background information so you have more appreciation in terms of how these metals affect the child who is autistic. Because it, it, it still could take quite some period of time to bleed and remove all these toxic metals out of the autistic child, child system, as the example I gave of this medical doctor and his young son. His son, by the way, became the youngest person ever to testify in front of Congress as regards autism. They brought the boy into Congress and he was a witness and explained how he felt prior to his father's treatment, how he felt during the treatment, and how, how he feels after the treatment. And he made, uh, he made quite a hit and quite a scene. I think, I think that's possible that you may even be able to Google that and um, probably on YouTube and actually see that testimony and hear the child's story out of his own words. It's very, very interesting. So at this point, when you have totally detoxified the child of the metals, and it, when you're starting to balance the vitamins in the child's system, you need to be particularly attentive to getting the minerals in the proper alignment and then the B vitamins because of how the B vitamins affect a person neurologically. Beyond this, it's important that you understand the genetic errors the child has and that you put the child on a program which is going to help him compensate for his genetic errors. So if the child is one of the people with the MTRR or the MTHFR genetic error, the child needs to be put on the forms of folate 
and B12 and other nutrients which help compensate for that genetic error. If the child happens to have the EPHX genetic error, he needs to be put on substances which are going to help his glutathione production and his body utilize glutathione. So whatever the genetic error is that this child has, they must be on a program to help compensate for this and for these errors for an indefinite period of time because their genetics are not going to change. The genetics are what they are. They're not changing. They're going to stay that way. At least this, this is the agreement so far here. And as long as the child has this genetic pattern, he needs to be on an appropriate program to help the body cope with it and compensate. The word compensate is very important here because the fact that these genetic errors are there, they predispose the, the child or the person to different conditions and states. By giving the correct nutrient, you can help the body compensate because what the genetic error essentially does is it stops a chemical or a physiological process from completing its cycle of action. This is what any genetic error does in the body. Uh, there are medications also that work in the same way. It's an interesting uh, conversation to have and to look at, but in the actual ways that many medications work is to block a chemical function or block a physiological function in the, in the hopes that it will then compensate for something that's occurring in the body that's gone awry and it will help the body achieve some type of balance or homeostasis. The genetic errors are working in the body as the same in the same fashion. The only difference is the genetic errors aren't a pill that you're swallowing. They're your permanent DNA. So they need to be compensated for so that the child doesn't start going backwards and start developing all these problems again. And typically, the type of substances that most autistic children need to be supplementing to help their predispositions are going to be substances which either increase the flow of blood and oxygenation in the body, particularly to the brain. These would be substances like vinpozetine, various nitric oxide precursors or nitric oxide products, and then products which are going to essentially help the detoxification functions. They would be supplements which help methylation, supplements which help glutathione, uh, and the like. These are the essential things that you're, you're generally going to find. But again, keep in mind, each child is an individual case. When you do their genetic testing, you'll see their own individual pattern so that things could be customized. But generally speaking, the areas that you're going to find the autistic child the weakest in are going to be the areas of methylation and any form of detoxification. Whether it's methylation, whether it's through glutathione, whether it's a kidney detoxification, um, which you would see the, the functions of arginine and ornithine in detoxifying ammonia from the system. It'd be literally any function of detoxification that you can think of, you'll find a problem there. Now, when we have this, let's say, physical pattern cleaned up, at that point, you can re-educate the child into learning without many of the behavioral and cognitive problems that he had in the past. You see, handling these problems that he has 
are not going to immediately turn the child into uh, some kind of a brilliant person or necessarily bring him right up to his age level in school. This is not something that you would expect. Handling the physical aspects of autism open up the door and allow the child now to be able to learn without having the encumbrance of the cognitive problems, the toxic metals, the dysbiosis, the candida, etc. <clears throat> the child then needs to relearn. So keep that in mind, is we're not going to expect the child then to suddenly know everything that he was ever taught or anything he ever observed. This is, this is now the point of de- where we can expect some kind of type of development to occur. Handle the child up to these points that I just brought up. Clean up everything. You will see improvements in the child's behavior. You'll see less tantruming. You'll see less of the repeating of words. Uh, difficulty expressing himself, difficulty speaking, tantrums, all of these odd things which occur in the child will reduce when you clean up this the physical aspect of this. But there are certain things which might remain because they've now become a habit that the child has acquired. And they're not even responsive anymore to any kind of physical stimulus. It may be learned behavior. So in cleaning all this up with a child... You can then re-educate them, as I say, educate them and re-educate them uh, to clean up any behavioral habits they have, um, have them learning again in a new unit of time without the encumbrances they've had in the past. We're going to check right now to see if we have any questions from the audience. Hold on one second. I think we have a few. It's interesting, one person writes in and asks how thyroid function may be involved in autism. Well, that's a very good question. Um, That's not a question which typically comes up very often. Um, I can tell you it's possible that if a child has low thyroid conditions, it would aggravate autism because one of the functions of thyroid hormone is to stimulate your liver to detoxify. So uh, a thyroid condition, low thyroid condition, would then certainly add to the detoxification problems that a person or a child would have. So while I can't say that that's something I've seen that's typical in children, I would definitely agree with your premise that if a person has a thyroid problem and they were autistic, it would definitely uh, aggravate the condition. So that's something most definitely we would want to see cleaned up. Another question here. Uh, In this question, the person is explaining that the the child has an intolerance to certain amino acids. And when they've tried to do chelation in the past... The chelation has failed because the child genetically can't tolerate particular amino acids. Well, I could definitely see that being a conundrum of sorts. Um, what I would say, you know, it's obvious that the, the, the um, key chelators, the main chelators, are amino acid in formation. Um, what I would suggest 
that you do in trying to chelate the child is to use non-amino acid-related chelators um, like vitamin C and like modified citrus pectin. Um, also, cilantro could be used as an adjunct. There's a product that, may, that is made by Meta, the Metagenics company, which is called Metalloclear, which is an herbal product that helps enhance your natural detoxification of metals. So that would have to be the route that you would need to go. You would need to go the mega vitamin route on the vitamins that are known chelators. And then you would need to go the route of other natural chelators, which are not amino acid based. And best example I could give you there would be modified citrus pectin. Certainly is not amino acid based. Sulfur, generally speaking, is a, is a, a good option to try. Sulfur not being an actual amino acid, but being a, a, an element, is it's, it's essential for detoxification. So a product that contains sulfur, it would you typically be MM, an MSS, sorry, MSM type of sulfur with molybdenum and with vitamin C in it would typically be used. Um, the type of vitamin C that you'd want to use in a case like this is a vitamin C which has cofactors which enhance or build up glutathione in the body. And then individual B vitamins sometimes in high amounts can help to eliminate the metals like it was a chelation. Um, vitamin B6 in very high amounts can help the body get rid of mercury. Pentathenic acid in very high amounts can help the body get rid of copper. If there is manganese toxicity, manganese toxicity is not that well documented in autism, but I can tell you personally, I've seen many children with manganese toxicity, and you may want to go online and Google symptoms of manganese toxicity. You'll be very surprised as to how the symptoms of manganese toxicity relate to autism. So I'm, I'm saying manganese, not magnesium. Those are often confused. Manganese is spelled M-A-N. G-A-N-E-S-E. This is an essential trace mineral. It works with vitamin E in your body to form hormones, and it's essential for the health of your tendons and ligaments. But in excess, it causes many, many neurological symptoms and odd behavior in people. So, uh, nonetheless, this would be an element that could be toxic, and if so, vitamin B1 in high amounts is excellent at reducing elevated manganese levels. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you found this informative. Uh, you're welcome to look on my website. There is an article there which covers autism in depth. There is also a taped a video recording of one of my lectures that was done at Autism One in Chicago over, I believe it would be the uh, Labor Day weekend. And this is covered in detail the entire autism treatment is covered in detail at that lecture. Thank you again, and we will speak to you next Tuesday. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition 
and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.